United Church of Christ presents Think on These Things, the sermon by the Rev. Jean Randall Bodman, presented on Sunday, November 20th, 2022. Looking forward to the big meal we're all going to have this week, I assume that, like me, most of you grew up with family traditions without which Thanksgiving isn't Thanksgiving. At our house, the secret to a delicious feast started with keeping the bird moist by draping it with bacon. I know that's horrifying to some people, but to us, it is not Thanksgiving without that particular aroma of the bacon. And the bacon is the best part of the meal. I don't need the rest, except of course, for the pumpkin pie with pecan brown sugar praline topping my grandmother's recipe, so good. In fact, it's so good that because David and I are not hosting this year, so it's just the two of us, and because I don't really eat sweets very often anymore, I baked the pie and brought it to church (laughs) so I could have a little bit. (laughs) That's coming at coffee hour. The end of our Thanksgiving, and it wasn't Thanksgiving without it, was watching the movie It's a Wonderful Life, which played every year reliably on our local Philadelphia station, even before VCRs and recordings. We could rely on that every year. And then the rush toward Christmas would begin. But it wasn't Thanksgiving if we didn't end the day crying when George Bailey found Zuzu's petals. Had to happen. And I imagine that like me, Most of you grew up with cultural traditions about Thanksgiving and about the first Thanksgiving, the tradition that we learned in elementary school, where some of us were assigned to wear headdresses with craft store feathers, and some of us were assigned the task of wearing construction paper black hats and those little buckles on our shoes that were made out of aluminum foil. And then we would hear again the story that had been passed down from generation to generation about the courageous pioneering pilgrims who invited the local Native Americans to a celebratory feast because those natives had been so generous and had benevolently taught the pilgrims how to grow maize and to fish in the local waters. And now we know more. We know that the story we inherited is mostly a myth a myth that has harmed the Wampanoag people, the people who almost always go unnamed in those retellings of the tale, the ones who are made to look like they are Lakota people from the plains, even though their style of dress and house and culture was vastly different. But in our Western imagination, that's what an indigenous person looks like. So that's how we, that's how we design them. In his book, This Land is Their Land, The Wampanoag Indians, Plymouth Colony, and the Troubled History of Thanksgiving, the author David Silverman points out that the myth which seems so gentle and so pleasing to us, so full of a a gratifying coming together of cultures, has actually been deeply harmful to the Wampanoag people, whose lives and society were forever damaged 
after the English arrived in Plymouth. The myth that friendly Indians, unidentified by tribe, welcomed the pilgrims to America, teach them how to live in this new place, and sit down to dinner with them, and then conveniently disappear. They hand off America to white people so that we can create a great nation dedicated to liberty, opportunity, and Christianity for the whole rest of the world to profit by. That's the story. It's about Native people conceding to colonialism and cooperating in it quietly. It's bloodless, and it is, in fact, an extension of the ideology of manifest destiny. The myth that we've inherited leaves us imagining that history doesn't begin for Native people until Europeans arrive. The truth is that people had been in the Americas for at least 12,000 years, and if you listen to indigenous stories, they had been here since the beginning of time. The stories we usually tell about our history ignores all of that history that came before our arrival. In addition, the way we tell the story of the Mayflower and its heroic settlers leads us to imagine that this was the first contact the indigenous people had with Europeans. And it's not true. Professor Silverman said in an interview several years ago, Wampanoags had a century of contact with Europeans before 1620. It was bloody contact, and it involved slave raiding by Europeans. At least two Wampanoags spoke English. They had already been to Europe and back before the Mayflower landed. And they knew the very organizers of the Pilgrim's Venture. This was not a brand new awakening. Most poignantly, using a shared dinner as a symbol for colonialism really has it backward. There is no question about it that the Wampanoag leader, also, I don't know if I can pronounce his name appropriately, but their leader reached out to the English at Plymouth. When the, when the Mayflower arrived in 1620, the leader of the Wampanoag people reached out to them and wanted to form an alliance. This is not because he was innately friendly or was friendly to the colonial aspirations of the English people. It's because his people had already been decimated by disease. An epidemic had arrived on the shores with those people coming to fish and coming to, get to find slaves. He saw an alliance with the English as a way to fend off a rival tribe, the Narragansett. It was a strategic move on his part. But that's not the stuff of our Thanksgiving myths and stories. We don't like to think about it in that way. We don't necessarily like to think about the Native people once we get past the idea of them acquiescing to us, and we want to think about it as some sort of lovely cross-cultural connection, we don't like to think about the Wampanoags being as just as strategic as the English and the French and the German. And of course, they were, because they were on their own land and trying to protect it. The Thanksgiving myth that we live with also doesn't address how that relationship between the English and the Wampanoag deteriorated and resulted in a really horrific war, King Philip's War. It also ignores the fact that the Wampanoag survived and adapted over the centuries. 
that despite all of the odds, they are still here. We pretend that they vanished into the mists of history, having left us with a beautiful event to celebrate. Now, the other thing to remember is that Puritan people, like most Western Christians, did in fact often have days of thanksgiving. Most often, these days of thanksgiving were days of fasting and prayer and supplication to God, either thanksgiving for a war that they had won, a disease epidemic that they had survived, any number of things could cause the people to declare a day of thanksgiving. But often, these were days of fasting. Sometimes they were days of feasting, but that was less common. There were, in fact, there is, in fact, evidence that the pilgrims, the Puritans across New England, did, in fact, have days when they feasted in Thanksgiving. Sadly, some of that feasting was in celebration of having won bloody wars. Some of it was Thanksgiving for having survived the winter, just like the myth tells us. There is some strain of truth in the myth that we've inherited. But then, in 1769, a group of pilgrim descendants who lived in Plymouth felt like their cultural authority was slipping away as New England became less relevant, as there were more colonies, as the country expanded. New England was losing its identity as the power base of the new country. And they wanted to do something to boost, boost that identity. So they started to plant the seeds of this idea that the pilgrims were the fathers of America who should be revered and looked to. What really made it the story, the feast made it as part of the story, is that a publication mentioning the dinner published by Reverend Alexander Young included a footnote that said, this was the first Thanksgiving, the great festival of New England. People picked up this footnote and the idea kind of spread and then Abraham Lincoln declared it a holiday during the Civil War to foster unity. This year, as we sit down with our friends and families to give thanks, I invite us to bring the reality of all of this complex history with us, the endurance of the indigenous people across the continent, the real courage of the pilgrims, and also their cultural blindness, their inability to see the native people as equal sharers of the earth, their arrogant assumption about their own superiority and their tendency to commodify the earth, and also their passionate commitment to God. The belief beneath their arrogance, they had an ideal of community built on gratitude to God, sharing of goods within their community, not necessarily outside it, but within their community, they believed in sharing their goods, in mutual forbearance, and in interdependence. However imperfectly they lived their ideals, they began with the vision of a political community based on the radical idea of brotherly affection, where each person's good was wrapped up in the good of their neighbors. A vision of the beloved community that Jesus announced rooted in the realization that everything that is, is a gift. That in the beloved community, there should be no permanent divide between the benefactors who give 
and the beneficiaries who receive. They believed that we are all recipients of gifts from one another, that with every breath and heartbeat, we are receiving a gift, and that we are all receivers and givers. This glimpse of community of mutuality that John Winthrop saw and which he preached about in his sermon as the Puritans left has been misused even by the very first settlers, colonists, ever since he preached about his city on a hill. We have misused it, but there is in there a vision of mutuality and love and tender caring for one another at one's own expense for the common good. I hear those echoes of mutuality, at least among human beings in our own group. I hear echoes of that in a small way, echoed in the, it's a, the, the Puritans had it in a small vision. The Haudenosaunee people had a much larger, larger vision of it, where the reciprocity was not just among my people, not just among all people, but among all creation, based on the same recognition of our interdependence and gratitude for the gifts that the other brings. Gratitude can be very complicated. It seems simple, but like love, gratitude is both a noun and a verb. It's a feeling made up of lots of emotions, surprise, delight, awe, love, a sense of belonging and being cared for. It's a tender feeling it can also be, because it's a tender feeling, a vulnerable feeling, and a little bit scary for that reason. Like love, it is also a verb. It's a way of behaving and a disposition of character that we can choose. We can choose to practice gratitude even when our feelings are hollow or muted. If we're feeling resentful or disappointed, or envious. Even when we are suffering, we can choose a disposition of gratitude. There have been rather a lot of studies in the past few years about the benefits of gratitude. And if you go on a certain sort of rabbit hole on the web, you could be lost forever. There are benefits to our mental health, but also our physical health. Some studies have found it to be literally protective of our cardiac health to have a thankful heart. Gratitude is good for us, body and soul, but it is not a panacea. It will not cure every disease, despite what the prosperity gospel may claim, and it cannot end all of our suffering or fix the injustice of the world, but it will ground us in the reality that just to be is a blessing and that we are part of a web of giving and receiving, of reciprocity that is going on around us at all times. Choosing gratitude can be a subversive practice, reminding us that we are all mutually dependent on one another, all worthy of both receiving and giving that the hierarchies that we see in culture that would have us believe that some are independent and only give is a lie. We are all interdependent on one another, which is, again, a little bit scary. 
Gratitude can remind us that we are not alone, even when we are suffering. It can help us to focus on the tailwinds that we have received that have sped us on our way in life. All those privileges and gifts that we forget are even there because they are there so consistently. The privilege of having had a family that loves me, of having grown up in a neighborhood that was safe, of going to an excellent school, through an excellent school system, getting to go to an excellent college that my family couldn't afford because I got a scholarship. All of those tailwinds are there still, and I forget them and focus instead on the headwinds, the hard things I've had to overcome, because we all have both, tailwinds behind us propelling us forward and headwinds of challenge. Gratitude can help us remember the tailwinds that are still with us, can ground us in those and give us energy to fight the headwinds. Gratitude can strengthen us to fight against injustice with hope and even joy. Joy born of the gratitude of recognizing those who are working alongside us in this moment and all of the people who have come before us working for justice whose work has made a difference in the world. Gratitude can sound like a duty. Did you write your thank you letters yet? It is in reality a gift that can help us reclaim our past, be awake to our present moment, and prime us to be alert to the blessings in the future so that we notice them. It is so easy to walk through the world forgetting how much we are receiving in every single moment. Gratitude can prime us to be alert and awake. Thanks be to this community. Thanks be to each one of you and all of you together. And thanks be to God. Amen.